Sound Design. And I go to hit the opening cue of the second act, and nothing happened. The desk was frozen. Oh my God. So the lights are coming down, and I grab the phone to the stage managers and say, uh, bring the house lights back up. We have a problem. Sound design. Live. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. I'm Nathan Lively. So today I'm joined by sound engineer Daryl Bornstein, and we're here to talk about the five-time Tony-nominated play, Rock of Ages. Why? Because it's the funniest, most rockinest musical I've ever seen, and it involves some pretty big audio challenges that I would love to understand better. Unfortunately, the only way for you to see it is to go to a show, which you can do in New York City, Las Vegas, London, Stockholm, or in the U.S. National Tour. But you can also listen to the original cast recording just to give you an idea of a little bit of what the show is like. They can also go on a cruise. There's a cruise that leaves New York that does a, an abbreviated version of the show. Once oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I did, I did want to mention to people, please don't watch the movie. Um, it's terrible, and I won't say much more about it, but I, I was so disappointed. I, hoped, I thought it was going to be like the play. Let me just say a quick synopsis for people who haven't seen Rock of Ages. In 1987, a small-town girl meets a big city rocker on the Sunset Strip. They fall in love in LA's most famous rock club against the backdrop of 80s hits from Journey, Bon Jovi, Poison, and more. Daryl Bornstein, thanks for being here. Uh, My pleasure. Okay, Daryl, first of all, what's your favorite song from the show? There's got to be one that you don't get tired of hearing maybe every night. You know, I'm embarrassed to say that I actually don't know the titles of most of the songs. <laughs> okay. And the two songs that I like best are two that are, that are the two ballads sung by the Sherry character. And one is, I wish I could tell you the titles. I have no idea. It's in this, <laughs> in this, okay, it's in how the does, scene. What it, is, how does the chorus go? Or, what's that? <laughs> I was just gonna it's say, hard to actually give notes, give notes or take notes because I, I never bothered to learn the titles of any of the songs. But the one where uh, when she enters and comes downstage and there's a, just the acoustic guitar playing and it's her conversation with her parents on the phone, I think that's a very beautiful song. Where you going, what you're looking for? Mom, I have to. You know those boys don't want to play no more. And then the song at the very end of the show, when where she's she pl- sings only a, a very short uh, segment of it, but she plays it basically over what I think is a uh, you know bells of some sort. Oh, I must have been a dreamer, and I must have been someone else. How did you get your first job in audio? I got my first job in audio probably like most people by mistake. <laughs> um, I was a, I believe I was a freshman in college, and I was on work study. And my first work study job was in the dining hall, and I, my job was 
cleaning all of the egg dishes. So all of the breakfast dishes that had eggs on them uh, came, were put into a, a huge trash can full of water so that the eggs wouldn't dry. And my job was to clean them before they went into the dishwasher. Not a particularly exciting job. <laughs> uh, I got into a bike accident. I was riding home after picking up some laundry and the laundry got caught in my front spoke, my front wheel as I was going down a hill. And I, the bike stopped. I kept going, flew over the handlebars and ended up in gravel and had to go to the hospital and get some stitches. And so fortunately, I got to stop uh, washing egg dishes for a while. And when it was time to go back to work, I went and asked if there were any other work-study jobs. And it turns out there was one at the Performing Arts Center. And as the cliche goes, the rest is history. I also happened to get along very well with the, with the sound guy at the, at the college. He was a great guy to learn from because he approached sound visually. Hmm. So we learned to see sound, and that's been very helpful in all the various things that I do. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that. I have a program coming up that I'm going to be teaching about system tuning, and it's called Seeing Sound. But um, tell me what you think of when you think of seeing sound. Well, the, the best example I can give is a piano. When, when a, miking a piano, how do you approach a piano? And every, everybody has their own way of approaching a piano, uh, and everybody has what they think is the best way. Uh, the way I approach a piano is every piano is different, and you have to listen to the piano to find what it is. Does it have two very distinct lobes for high and low? How do they interact? How distinct are they? How is it affected by the lid? What are you actually doing with the piano? And I try to visualize how that sound comes out of the piano. It makes it a lot easier than just hearing it. So if you visualize what your sources are and how they project the sound and how various things change that projection, then all of a sudden you're actually seeing it as well as just hearing it. In, in terms of live sound, it's, it's similar when you're talking about how sound behaves in a room. Uh, there's a lot of great visuals for that. You can use ping pong balls bouncing around and endlessly bouncing around. You can use an incandescent light bulb that shines everywhere. You can use a, a, a more... You know, a spotlight that is focused more specifically that will behave more like a speaker that has a, a tighter pattern to it. You know, think of think of what's coming out of the speaker as light, and how is it going to hit the wall, and then how is it going to reflect off the wall and reflect off of other surfaces. So, if you can add the uh, the visual component and the third dimension to how you're looking at sound, it's a lot easier to understand how it's behaving, and then. It helps you address whatever problems you need to address, if there are any. There, somebody told me a joke about a doctor the other day. It was something about, you're going to charge me this much to do such and such a procedure? And he says, no, I'm actually charging you about 50 cents for the procedure. I'm charging you the rest of it for knowing that you need to have the procedure done. <laughs> and this yeah. kind of... <laughs> You know how many how many times you walk into a situation and there's a million speakers and isn't that wonderful? But you end up turning half of them off and all of a sudden it sounds better. But yeah. you have to know which ones to turn off. 
I'll do it. So, Daryl, tell me how you got the job working on Rock of Ages. Uh, once again, it was by mistake. It was mostly because no one else wanted it. A good friend of mine was mixing it, and I actually gave him his first Broadway show, and we've kind of traded shows since then. Um, and he was looking for somebody to be a sub. And without exception, at least in my experience, Rock of Ages is the most difficult show I've ever had to mix. Wow. It's certainly the most difficult show to learn. Um, I don't know if it's the most difficult one to mix, but certainly the most difficult to learn. I think I've mixed other ones that were more difficult because we didn't have any automation. But it's very, very difficult because of the way it was set up. Some of it's not entirely logical. Huh and certainly not consistent. And unfortunately, because of the number of people who already know the show, it's not going to change. And once you learn it, it's okay, but learning it's a real bear. And it's as you know, it's a very fast-paced show, and there's a lot that goes on, and it never stops. So right. in, the, uh, in the first act, there's probably about 30 seconds where you can take a little breather. And in the second act, there's a couple of minutes because there's some long book scenes. But the first act just never stops. Wow. So, uh, so anyway, when, uh, when, I, when my buddy asked me if I would do it, I went to see the show. And after I saw the first act, I said, absolutely not. I have no interest whatsoever. <laughs> and then I listened to the second act and I said, well, you know what? Maybe I'll give this a shot because I don't know if I can do this. This looks really hard. So I'll take it as a challenge. And that's how I got it. The other thing that what's happened is contractually... Uh, the way it had been set up prior to me getting there is that anybody who was a sub on the show, and I was being hired initially to be the sub, was only guaranteed one show every other week. And I said, that's impossible. The show is far too difficult to be able to mix if you're there only once every other week. Mm -hmm. There's no way to keep it in your brain or your fingers. So they changed the contract so that I would get a minimum of once a week. Uh, The training period for the show is long. It's 32 shows paid, which is a lot. And I used every second of it. Plus, I spent a lot of time prior to that and during the days when the show wasn't running, practicing to get the show. Because you pretty much have to memorize the show in order to be able to run it properly. And then ended up taking over the show because the operator who I took over for initially, uh, ended up going to do Hedwig. So while he was with Hedwig, I was, I was at the show. Uh, my time at the show actually is coming to an end next week. He's coming back from Hedwig. And it's good. It's time to leave. It's a very loud show. It's, for me, it's actually a little too loud. I found actually after mixing it, uh, I've been off book now for six months. And if I go away for two or three days, I'm totally lost the day that I come back. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's 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 just that it just doesn't stop. You know, maybe it's just because I'm old and stupid, but I think it's just because the show is really hard. I wanna rock! Tell me about some of the reasons that make it hard, and I also want to know how you learn it. So, how does someone who's never mixed it before start learning to mix it? Are you can you mix to a recording and do kind of a virtual okay. sound check thing, or do you just stand over someone's shoulder? For learning this show, there's. Uh, Two parts to it, actually three. The first part is that you watch the show so that you get a sense of the show and you get a sense of what the sound for the show is. So I sat with Bob. Bob Edder was the engineer who gave me the show and who is returning to the show. 
And he mixes a fabulous show and an incredibly consistent show. And considering how difficult the show is, not only just the, the sheer difficulty of the show, the mix itself, but all of the variables with constant cast changes and band changes, and the fact that it's in a very small house, so the a different size of audience or changes in humidity and temperature make an enormous difference in how the sound works in the room. So I listened to, to Bob's show. His, uh, I took his script and then I created my own with my own markings and then started working through the show with a tape and basically sat in front of a, a console and moved faders and pushed buttons listening to the tape until it got into my muscle memory. And then we started after, and I, I continued to uh, sit with Bob and listen to the shows while I was learning. And then I started mixing, and I would mix anywhere from one to six pages at a time and just keep adding on to get through the show. By the time we get to the end of the show, the beginning of the show is quite good, and the end of the show is a little shaky. It's all repetitive. It's all about learning it and knowing what's coming next and being able to anticipate what's going to come next and knowing where the cues happen and what the cues do and sort of the choreography of your hands. With this particular show... While you can be creative with the mix, you can't actually be creative with the mechanical parts of it. Uh, there's not too many ways to do what your hands have to do in order to be able to do everything in the time that's available. The, the other difficulty with the show with, and with learning the show from a technical standpoint is that the way that the cues were set up, the way the automation was set up, we can't actually go backwards. So if you jump a cue you're in trouble. You cannot go backwards because you don't know how far back you have to go in order to reassign all the VCAs. Oh, wow. So every cue, every cue does not reassign everything that happens in that particular moment. Oh. Uh, the other thing is when I started learning it, the Go button, which was a GPI external button for the Avid profile, which is the desk that we're using, uh, was problematic because it would skip cues or oh, it would no. not take cues. <laughs> it, was, it, it was very intermittent. So with a show that difficult, when you're learning, you've got your nose in your book or on your fingers, and you can't really look up at the screen to see what cue you're in. And the next thing you know, you're two cues ahead because the button decided to jump. Uh, that problem has been rectified. The sh show, the audio equipment comes from PRG in New York, and they actually found an old CADAC button and created a CADAC button for our Go button. And it's been pretty rock solid. Every once in a while it doesn't take a cue, but for the most it never skips a cue, knock on wood. Great. So it's made it it's it's made it a little less hair raising. But you know, every once in a while if your brain wanders, which can happen, uh, you can end up in the wrong place and then you're in trouble. I I blew a cue, I I was in the wrong place. I, th I thought I was in one place and I wasn't, and so I jumped a cue, and all of a sudden I've got people on stage and I have absolutely no access to their f mics. Wow. Or another case, uh, you know, there's tons of reverb coming through them. And, you know, you can scramble and try to rectify the situation as fast as you can, but it's, it's unlike any other show I've ever done because you cannot make a mistake. And with the quantity of cues, the quantity of mixing, you just have to be focused the entire time. Now, add to that that 
the show is actually true to its advertising, which it's the best party on Broadway. And that's a big problem because people think they're at a concert. So they're drunk, they're screaming, they're having a good time, <laughs> and they're very distracting. You know, I can okay. have people next to me just have, having a grand old time the whole show, and I can't actually hear the show because they're so loud. Oh, my God. So, so concentration, this show, if, if it's about anything, it's about concentration. What's the best single action you've taken or decision you've made in your career that led to the biggest positive impact? The, the single most important decision I ever made was to approach a producer and lobby to be the production sound engineer on a musical that two friends of mine had been hired as the sound designers. Uh, one of them is a legendary recording engineer, and the other was a, a very fine live sound engineer for uh, rock musical or for rock music. Neither of them had any experience whatsoever in theater, and certainly none on Broadway. And working on Broadway, or even working in theater, there's. Uh, there's processes that you have to address that have to do with other departments as well as your own that if you're not familiar with them, it makes the overall process very, very difficult and sometimes disastrous. So for some reason, the uh, the producers hired me and I became the sound engineer and it was great. It was a very difficult show. I can't remember how many inputs I had, but it was well over 100 with absolutely no automation. Similar show to Rock of Ages, it was Gospel at Colonus, which had a, uh, a large band, orchestra, a large chorus. It was a, in a very, very busy show. But it was great. It was a lot of fun. And I had a lot of fun with my pals doing it. And it got me my first union card and got me involved with theater at a very high level. So I guess the answer is create opportunities. Thanks for listening to Sound Design Live. If you're here because you're working on building your career as a sound engineer, then I'd like to invite you to sign up for two new free online courses. The first one is how to make money as a sound engineer, and the second one is intro to sound system tuning. These two courses contain my best material from the last three years on mastering your craft and finding more of the work that you love. To sign up for these two free courses, just grab your phone and I'll wait. I'll wait. And text your email address to 747-666-5768 or head over to sounddesignlive.com. One more time, to sign up for how to make money as a sound engineer and intro to sound system tuning, text your email address to 747 666 5768 or visit sounddesignlive.com what makes somebody successful and i think that's kind of what this is all about and, and how do you how do you how do you become somebody that people want to work with and yes. want to continue to work with and people want to work with somebody who is a team player who is going to do what they need to do to make sure that their work isn't compromised, but at the same time understands the big picture and approaches problems as a challenge as opposed to it being 
an annoyance. It's not really a word I'm looking for, but when a director comes to you with an absolutely crazy idea, and you, of course, are certain that it's never going to work, the answer the director wants is not, oh, that's never going to work. It's, yeah, let's give it a try. Mm-hmm. And who knows, maybe in the process of trying, you'll, you'll discover something new. As an example, I worked with a director, a wonderful director, worked with him for years, who was very, very specific and yet had absolutely no concept of time. So he'd say, well, that cue needs to be 20 seconds. Well, it didn't need to be 20 seconds. It needed to be two minutes or it needed to be one second. Mm -hmm. And this is pretty much a consistent thing with this director. So it's just something, you know, it's not about telling him he's wrong or that he doesn't know how to tell time. It's interpreting what he's asking and coming up with a solution and, and then going out to dinner and having a good time. You know, in the, I used to hire a lot of crews for a lot of different shows that I did around the world. And the criteria for those crews was pretty simple. Uh, there was nobody on my list who didn't have the experience or the skills to do the job. Everybody had a tremendous amount of experience. The only criteria was, is this somebody that you want to sit with across the table at dinner and have a fun conversation that had something to do with anything other than audio? So... You know, after you're doing this for long enough, and I'm sure you know this, you want to be around people that you enjoy being around. And I think that's probably what makes for success, aside from skills. Ladies love him. Guys want to be him. And his band? Well, they hate his guts. But he's a star, and stars are undeniable, like herpes. Am I right, home listener? The other story that I like to tell is that in our, in our world, in the world of sound, and regardless of what role you're playing, there's always a crisis. Every show has a moment of crisis. Over time, hopefully, that moment of crisis gets smaller. The first moment of crisis I remember was on a very big show I was doing, which was a cavalcade of stars. And it was in a huge hall. And I remember, and it was the first time I'd done a a show in a big, boomy hall. So I remember in the rehearsal in this empty hall, uh, one of my feet was uh, firmly planted by the console and the other one kept wanting to run away. And that lasted through the entire rehearsal. I mean, it just sounded so awful. I just could never get it to be right during oh, the rehearsal. No. And I, was, I was really panicked. And luckily, I was working with a, a producer, a production manager who I knew well from other things. And he just said, you let me know when you're satisfied so we can talk. And it turns out we couldn't talk at all during the rehearsal. There, we just never got there. Once, the, once we got into the show with the full audience in the house and the acoustics of the house had calmed down, everything was great. It sounded wonderful. So that was a learning experience for me because I hadn't been in that situation. And the next time I was in that situation, the panic was shorter. Now my panics can be measured in milliseconds. But they always happen. You always think that, you're gonna, that you did something wrong, that you didn't hit the record button or that your, your hand's getting ready to hit the wrong button at the wrong time. But for, the, for people coming into the business and working their way up, uh, there's nothing wrong with, with panic. It's going to happen. Rather than letting it control you, just accept it and know that as you become more and more skilled and have more experience, it'll become less and less. 
mm-hmm. or shorter and shorter. When we come into the theater to fire up, we turn everything on, and then I go out to front of house to go through the rather extensive power-up procedure for the system. Uh, because with LCS and the profile and the Galileos, there's a very specific procedure we have to follow. What we haven't mentioned so far is this show also has an onstage monitor mixer. So the monitor engineer does a number of things in addition to mixing all the in-ears for the musicians and mixing the variety of speakers that are on stage for the actors. Uh, He also does all the prep of the microphones and changes whatever mics need to be changed and puts batteries in and then brings them out to me for the checkout. So once we have things turned on, I turn on the the main racks for LCS and for the console, go out front and turn on the UPS, do the recalc for the faders on the console, and then fire up LCS, which is a pretty lengthy process. And then once I get through that, I fire up Galileo, which I use to check the speaker system, basically to turn parts of the system on and off. Then I turn the console on. The console takes quite a while to boot up because <laughs> it has the largest number of plugins of any profile in the world. And because of the, pro- because of the plugins that we're using and the quantity that we're using, we're actually running an older version of the firmware for the desk because oh my god the newer versions won't actually work with everything that we're using the the amount of time that it takes to boot the desk and the order in which things need to be booted so that there doesn't end up being a communication error early on when i took over the show i came back from intermission and there was an error message for the desk so i actually called bob who was out of town he was in pittsburgh and asked him about the error message. And he said, oh, that's no problem, just ignore it. So I did, and I go to hit the opening cue of the second act, and nothing happened. The desk was frozen. Oh, my God. So the lights are coming down, and I grab the phone to the stage managers and say, uh, bring the house lights back up, we have a problem. They said, really? I said, yes. And then they said, how long will it take you to fix it? And my answer was, I honestly don't know. Uh, since it take since it takes a minimum of five minutes to reboot the desk, I don't know. Anyway, in the course of rebooting the desk, I got the blue screen of death, which is always fun, and <laughs> I had to reboot three times, and it took twenty minutes to get the desk back up and running. And then, oh, you love working on this show, yeah. You know, it was, it was uh, and honestly. You know, uh, I didn't panic. I just it, it was a moment where you shouldn't panic, but. The only thing I thought was that we're not going to have a second act. I'll keep trying, but I can't imagine that we're actually going to get this thing up and running. But we did, and it was actually quite charming and wonderful because after the first five minutes, uh, the band started to play. The band actually played a concert for the audience because they could still play through the monitor system. And then the cast came out, and they were entertaining the audience. So it was really a very interesting second act because the audience... Bonded with the band and the cast the way that they don't usually get an opportunity to, and the second act was fantastic. the The reaction from the audience was amazing, and the way that the 
band and the cast were performing was really quite special. I've never seen it since then. Once I get everything up and running, I then have to uh, set the basic cues for the show. So we have a lot of uh, setups based on who's in the show. And one of the things on Broadway is that, especially if you're, you have actors where you have wildly different gain structure or EQ or uh, dynamic processing needs, uh, you have to have a way of quickly restoring those settings and having them track through the show. Uh, the profile was never intended to run a contemporary Broadway show, but they came up with some very clever ways of working around automation limitations so that we actually can easily restore settings for every actor in every role. And a lot of the actors play uh, cover multiple roles. So we go through and basically fire snapshots that bring up the basic settings for the entire show and then whatever specific snapshots we need for each actor. Okay. And then we actually start the actual checkout, which is... Uh, playing music through every speaker system, and there's quite a few, and then firing some sound effects and making sure that we have click, because there's a lot of the show that's done to click, and then checking our CD player that we use for our walk-in music, and then checking all of the microphones. And we go through and check every microphone. We have a switcher in the back, a manual switcher for the backups because there's not enough holes on the desk and it also be just way too hard for me to change things. I'm very lucky that the two guys who are monitor engineers for the show uh, usually hear problems and switch to backup mics before I even know there's a problem. So it's usually nice. very transparent. Um, but I go through all the mics and you know checking mechanically to make sure they're okay, checking the transmitters to see if they're making noise. We've had a run of problems recently, and this is a typical problem with Sennheiser 5212s, where after a while uh, they start to make noise when the case is flexed, and it has to do with uh, something that gets loose inside, and it's there's it's nothing that we can fix in the field. So recently, we've actually swapped out almost all of the transmitters, and the problem's gone away. If if you want to correct the problem, it requires actually flexing the case. And as anybody who uses a fifty two twelve knows that it's a metal case, uh, it's a little bit of work to flex it and to make the noise go away. But uh, there was a while where we were doing a lot of those, and we're checking to make sure that the the, the pop filters on each of the mics the is uh, clean. They're very small, so a little bit of dirt makes a big difference. And making sure that the backups all work and sound similar to the main mics. And that all takes, on, on a good day, that'll take a half an hour. On a bad day, it'll take about 45 minutes. And then we, I take the mics down to the cast while the monitor engineer then goes through his whole routine of checking all the speakers on stage, checking all of the in-ears and He's got three sets of wireless in-ears and then two sets of hardwired. Okay. Is that true or is it three? It's it's three and three, three, despite the fact that we have five guys. It depends on what they choose to use on a particular day. So that's our our pre-show, and then we might have to do a sound check for uh, somebody new coming into the show where the 
mic will have to be fitted to their head because every actor has their own mic fitted specifically for them. And then may have to create a snapshot with their specific gain and EQ settings. And then at half hour, we roll music and do a show. I did want to ask you if you're using any near field monitors for yourself because you are mixing under the balcony. It's a great question, and no, I am not using any near fields. I can actually hear all of the systems from the mix position with the exception of a couple of the systems for the balcony. And I can, I can hear how they affect everything, and I can hear the bounce from them, but I can't hear them directly. There's a pair of speakers on stage over the bandstand that the band comes through when they're functioning as underscore music or the scene is clearly on the bandstand and not bigger in the house. And then there's a variety of stereo systems around the proscenium and across the proscenium to cover the main house. And then there's a whole other set of speakers for upstairs and then a bunch of subs and then under balconies. So I hear a lot of... I hear a lot from the under balconies, but that's basically giving me clarity. But I, I hear the whole system. Wow, okay. You know, and it sounds different every night because of what's happening acoustically in the room. And you have to adjust to what's happening. So for an example, I think our capacity is someplace around 560 people. So if we have a show with 300 people, which nobody wants, but it happens, you can imagine how different it sounds and how you have to adjust. If I was to play, you know, mix the show at the level that I do for a full house for the uh, for a uh, house with only 300 people, basically all we hear is feedback the entire night. <laughs> the show is uh, the show is set up within an inch of its life in terms of feedback. Wow. If you're on the edge of feedback, you're loud enough. So, and depending on who's on, where they are, how their mic is sitting on a particular night, what their relationship is to somebody else on stage, have they changed the blocking at all? Uh, feedback is, a, is an issue. You have to really work hard to control it. Everybody just be cool! In terms of uh, what we're using, the, the mic elements for the head mics are Sennheiser HSP2s. That's for everybody's wearing those. And then the backup mics are Sennheiser MKE-1s, which uh, they use because they're very small. But they're, they match fairly well with the HSP-2s. The HSP-2s, when they work, sound great. They are fragile. They get broken frequently. The, it's a very physical show, and things get broken. It's interesting, the pattern of breakage, because it kind of goes in cycles. It's an expensive show in terms of microphones. We go through a lot of elements. And the fact that everyone has a custom mic, and some people, some cast members actually have two different sets because they may be playing roles where they have a single mic, and then they may be playing roles where they have a, a double mic. For those people, they have two sets. And then one character, and only one character in the show, actually has two full double sets because of how important his role is and how often his mic gets broken. As I said, the, 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 the system itself is a very complicated system which basically is composed of a lot of stereo systems. It's interesting in the orchestra, each side of the orchestra hears stereo. Really? So there's a specific stereo for each half of the orchestra, which is great. It's a final countdown. 
And the monitor engineer must be having a hell of a time too because he's dealing with head-worn mics and monitor speakers on stage and a small house. So talking about feedback. Well, actually, the the monitors seldom feedback. It's set up fairly well. And it's not a particularly active monitor mix. Uh, it was set up specifically not to be one. So there is a lot of mixing, but there's very tight parameters within which he mixes. There's more changes that happen with the in-ears than, there do, than do with the onstage speakers for the cast. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because each of the musicians wants to hear something slightly differently, and since they're basically wearing... They, all of them have custom molds, uh, custom ultimate ear molds, and so they're pretty isolated from the world. So their mixes are pretty important. One additional thing that there is that the audience is probably not aware of is that each of the musicians has a talk microphone that's always open so they can communicate with one another and with the monitor engineer throughout the show. Oh, where is that? They're mounted on the set and they turn around and talk into them when they need to. Nice. One of your questions you have on your list is, is the mixing automated with lots of scene memories or are you doing most of it manually? And the answer to the question is yes. Uh, there's a lot of cues. They're all very critical in terms of reassigning VCAs, uh, mics to VCAs, changing basic levels for each of the instruments in the band and for changing effects and for driving MIDI. But the show is mixed constantly. The fingers are never stop moving. As anybody who mixes musicals know, there's a lot of small adjustments that happen constantly to try and keep the vocals sounding somewhat constant or to match or to duck when the, when you have phase or comb filtering things happening. Right. So it's a very, very active show in terms of physically moving faders as well as using the automation to do everything that it can do. You told me that you're going to stop working on Rock of Ages pretty soon. So what's next for you, Daryl? I am doing post-production on eight PBS specials, which we shot over the last two years. I originally was going to be leaving Rock of Ages a month ago. So I'm actually a month behind schedule on the post-production. And it's a very tight schedule. The shows start airing the middle of November and a new show airs every week. So I'm... Out of the frying pan into the fire, I guess is the uh, the saying. Oh man, yeah, you got to catch up. Fortunately, the first two shows that I'm posting are the hardest and also the longest, so it'll get a little easier. But it's right now it's a little uh, daunting. You want to talk about a panic? I'm have been having a like a two week long panic. If anyone listening to this interview has more questions about Daryl's work with Rock of Ages or any of the other projects that he's worked on, you can just post a question in the comment and I'll send it to Daryl and make sure that he sees them. So Daryl, thanks so much for coming on Sound Design Live. My pleasure. Sound Design. I can't fight this feeling anymore 